0: i'm anton hellman i'm justin morgenstern and i'm rory spiegel and this is the journal Journal jam podcast podcast. where i work when a six-year-old guy rolls in with crushing chest pain and diaphoresis and i get handed the ems ecg showing an obvious anterior STEMI, it's kind of a no-brainer call the code STEMI and tick off a bunch of boxes so that the nurses can go ahead and give a bunch of meds before the patient's whisked off to the cath lab. Now on that tick box list is ASA with a number needed to treat of 42 to prevent death. Pretty good. There's Ticagrelor and the figure quoted on that one for number needed to treat is 72. Not too bad if you believe the data. And then next on the list is heparin. Now I've been taking that box for just about every patient with a STEMI but now that I've reviewed the literature, I'm not so sure that I should always be ticking that box, especially in the patient with more than a zero has-blood score. Now, I'm not going to give you a number needed to treat for heparin and STEMI because that data isn't nearly as definitive as it is with ASA, and any benefit in STEMI patient, as you'll see in this deep-dive journal jam, is, well, small. Now, what about non-STEMI or unstable angina patients? Does heparin low molecular weight heparin, or unfractionated heparin benefit the patient with, say, a pretty good story for angina with a little bump in their troponin and some ST depression in the lateral leads. I mean, I think we're expected to routinely give heparin for pretty much all these NSTEMI and unstable angina patients with ischemic changes seen on ECG, right? But the question arises, should we? So, Justin, Rory, should we give heparin routinely for ACS?
1: So, I mean, ACS is a pretty broad range of conditions, like you said, and things will get a little bit more complicated when we talk about STEMI. But based on the evidence we have here, I think I can make one pretty definitive conclusion, and that is heparin is harmful and shouldn't be used routinely in non-STEMI and unstable angina. I don't prescribe it, and I haven't in years.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Justin's right. I, I think we're going to get into this evidence a little bit and we'll, we'll see. It gets a little bit complicated, but given nowadays, we can't even really define what unstable angina is anymore. And this things that used to be unstable angina certainly isn't what we have now. I think we're going to see that the harms definitely outweigh the benefits.
0: So let's start our deep dive into literature with the less sick patients, guys, and STEMI and unstable angina patients. And I understand, unlike previous episodes where we were stuck going through a lot of confusing observational data, we actually have quite a few RCTs to guide us here. Justin, do you want to get us started?
1: Yes, yeah, so absolutely. There are eight RCTs that we're going to mention today. And you know, often when you just have a bunch of RCTs, the easiest way is to just summarize them quickly using a systematic review and meta-analysis. Everybody has seen one of those EBM pyramids, and the pyramid always puts the meta-analysis at the very top. And that technique works well if the trials are all methodologically perfect, and you just want to combine the statistical power of the trials to get a more mathematically precise number. But the big problem with meta-analyses is that they present a single number as a result with very small confidence intervals, and that can give us the impression of certainty. But the meta-analysis just assumes that the numbers from the prior trials were true. that There was no bias. The meta-analysis doesn't necessarily include critical appraisal. And what can happen is you can get a bunch of bad trials. And often they're clearly bad if you just read the original trial. But by combining them, you gloss over all those problems and create an aura of certainty.
0: So, Justin, that was a bit of a long-winded introduction for a guy who's really usually so great at driving home concise, clear messages But I think it's probably the key take-home point of the entire episode, actually, that meta-analyses only sit at the top of the EBM pyramid if the studies they combine are of high quality themselves. If the studies are flawed, the meta-analysis, well, is also flawed, right?
2: Yeah, essentially, you know, when it comes to evidence-based medicine, everyone always remembers the numbers, right? And so you take a bunch of crap of studies and you bestow some form of statistical legitimacy on the data that it probably doesn't deserve. And this is essentially because everyone forgets all the risk of bias and all the problems of the studies themselves. And they just focus on this statistically significant p-value that you have at the end.
1: And I think that's really important here because there is a Cochrane review on this uh, topic. And you'll find at the end of the episode that our conclusion is a little bit different from theirs. But maybe before we jump into the RCTs, we can just say what the Cochrane review concluded. And so this is Andrade Castellanenos in 2014, and they look at the exact same studies that we did, and their conclusion. Heparin, for non-STEMI, when compared to placebo, results in no change in mortality, no change in revascularization, no change in recurrent angina. Now, they report a small change in non-fatal MI, and this is where we'll disagree. And so we're going to come back to that in a minute. And they do also report that there's an increase in bleeding.
0: Okay, well, that's interesting. So Cochrane tells us there's zero change in mortality. So this isn't a life-saving medication, like for sure. And my guess is that that might be news to some people, but there is the potential for a decrease in MI. And that sounds important, although there's also a little bit of risk of harm from bleeding. So on the one hand, less MI, on the other hand, more bleeding. Let's get into the RCT so we can all really understand this harm benefit ratio. Rory?
2: Yeah, right before we do, I just kind of want to pause and take a look at that because even that, even that news that that Justin just told us about the Cochrane Review is, I think, would be news to many people. Like, at the very best, all heparin does is have a small change in non-fatal MIs. Just think about that for a moment. Because I think most people, when they think about starting heparin, they think that they're saving people's lives. But clearly, that's not the case. And this is the best look at the data we have. The first paper is "Throw It All," published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1988. And this was a prospective RCT looking at 479 patients diagnosed with unstable angina admitted to the CCU. And the diagnosis of unstable angina in 1988 was far different than it is today. I mean, these patients had EKG changes. They were levening. These were patients you'd actually truly be concerned of, unlike the ones today where we call unstable angina and we admit and they get discharged from the hospital the next day without any actual workup. So it was actually a forearm trial. This is great, which you could never do nowadays. And the forearms were aspirin plus placebo, Aspirin plus aspirin, heparin plus placebo, and placebo plus placebo. So think of the luck of the people who got put into the placebo plus placebo group. And all three active treatment groups were clearly better than the placebo arm. But there was no statistical difference between the active treatment groups. In other words, heparin was better than placebo, but they did not appear to add any benefit to the patients who were given aspirin. Now, this trial was small and it could have been underpowered to show a small benefit to heparin plus placebo. But again, we can't tell this from this data alone. The one thing that they did find difference between aspirin or placebo was heparin doubled the bleeding risk, 8% versus 3%. So our first trial, heparin was better than placebo, but it was just as good in an aspirin. And since we give aspirin to everybody that comes in with chest pain, are we really adding anything when we give heparin above that?
0: All right, so the first study then, it was actually a pretty well-designed RCT, not very applicable to 2019, but well-designed nonetheless, and it was in high-risk ACS patients, and it showed that ASA alone is as good as heparin plus ASA with less serious bleeding complications. All right, so uh, Justin, what's next in the the old-school literature?
1: So we're going back to 1990 here. This is the risk trial in Lancet. And is a very similar trial. Again, it's a prospective multicenter RCT, 796, only men with unstable angina or a non-Q wave MI. And again, these are high-risk, unstable angina. You had to have ECG changes to get into this trial. Same trial design. So aspirin plus placebo, aspirin plus heparin, heparin plus placebo, or placebo plus placebo. So in this trial, aspirin was better than placebo at all time points. So we sort of knew that. Now, if you looked at heparin alone, you might conclude there was a benefit, but you can't really do that because we give everybody aspirin now. If you compared aspirin alone to aspirin plus heparin, there is no benefit at all. At 90 days, there was no difference in either death or MI with heparin. Now, this trial has a little tricky bit, which we're going to come back to later, which was when they were looking through the secondary outcomes, they noticed that during the first five days, there was a decrease in MI in the group that had heparin. But There was a rebound effect, so the numbers equalized by the end of the trial by by 30 days. And the graph from this trial, it's figure three, if anybody actually has the trial, is incredibly important when you're trying to understand the rest of the heparin trials. And I think it's why we end up disagreeing with the Cochrane Review. If you're looking at just the patients who received aspirin, it is pretty clear that by day 15, there is no benefit to adding heparin at all. But... There's an early blip. In the first seven days, basically the same period of time where the people were actually on the heparin, there was a decrease in MI. But that blip is sort of irrelevant because it disappears as soon as the heparin stops. So, as soon as you stop your heparin, then you have your MI. Heparin, if anything, delayed your MI by about a week. But that little blip shapes all the future trials and actually probably the next 30 years of medical practice.
0: So, what you're saying, Justin, is that a small decrease in the rate of MI while on heparin that disappears after the heparin is stopped was what got everyone really excited about heparin for ACS in the first place. I mean, this sounds a little bit like the NINDS trial for stroke. They found maybe some benefit in functional outcome, and that's kind of what triggered this huge area of research. But let's give the researchers the benefit of the doubt. It makes sense that if you see that small improvement while patients are on heparin, you might ask, well, what if we keep the patients on anticoagulation for a longer period of time? Will that benefit them? Rory, do we have some RCTs that tell us that answer?
2: Yeah, yeah, we have a few. So the first one is a study by Coet et al., published in the American Journal of Cardiology, again, and this was in 1990. This was a pretty small trial. It was a pilot trial of 93 patients. That it, The authors enrolled patients with unstable angina, again, with objective EKG changes or non-Q-wave MIs, so that kind of dates us where we are in the MI literature because we're looking at non-Q-wave MIs. And they looked at three groups, aspirin alone, heparin followed by warfarin, but without aspirin, and aspirin, heparin followed by warfarin. There was also almost no objective outcomes in this trial. So it's hard to say anything really definitive here. There was only one death in follow-up in the heparin group and only four MIs, three in the heparin group and one in the aspirin group. Recurrent ischemia occurred in 22% of the patients in the aspirin group, 25% in the heparin group, and 45% in the combination group. Clearly, this trial is underpowered to really tell us anything, but it doesn't show us any even signal of benefit for adding heparin and then warfarin to aspirin alone.
0: So, so far, we have one RCT showing no benefit and probably some harm when heparin is added to ASA, another showing a bit of benefit, but only in the very short term, and another one showing zero benefit. So, Rory, I understand that this group ran another larger RCT looking at heparin plus warfarin, right?
2: Yeah, so same author, same kind of strategy, only this time was published in circulation in 1994. Um, Again, open-label RCT, this time of 214 patients, both with unstable angina, same criteria, and non-Q-wave MIs. And they compared aspirin alone versus aspirin plus heparin followed by three months of warfarin. And again, there was no statistical difference in their primary outcome of recurrent angina MI or death at three months. But if you look carefully, it was 19% in the aspirin plus heparin and warfarin group versus 28% in the aspirin alone group. So that's a pretty big difference. And the p-value here was 0.09. So 9% absolute difference. Now, this 9% difference, which may not be statistically significant, is somewhat concerning. But I want you to remember their outcome was what we call a composite outcome made up of angina, MI, and death. And if you look at the numbers and you look at the actually objective criteria, the ones that we truly care about and the ones that can't really be influenced by an open label study, death was only 2% in both groups, no difference, and MI, 8 versus 6% against no real difference. So... The complete difference in their outcome was found by the subjective finding of recurrent angina.
0: So what you're saying then, just to clarify, is that while the combined outcomes of recurrent angina MI and death look promising for benefit, when they looked at them separately, there was actually no mortality benefit and there was no recurrent MI benefit, just some recurrent angina benefit, which really is a subjective outcome.
2: Right. Especially given that you have an open label trial with authors who truly probably believe in this um, treatment now that they've done a second study looking at the same thing.
0: I mean, that's kind of reminiscent of the inclusion of revascularization in MACE for the more recent risk stratification studies, like all those troponin and heart score and all of that. You know, what we really care about is death and recurrent MI, not revascularization or recurrent angina, I would say.
2: Yeah, you can imagine someone coming in with chest pain and, you know, they're on warfarin, oh, that's probably not cardiac chest pain, you're anticoagulated versus, oh, you're not on anything, that's probably recurrent angina, right? And, and that's how things get defined.
1: Yeah, so I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, we said the exact same thing in our stress testing episode. It's so hard to define some of these subjective cardiac outcomes. So when I read these trials, I really try to focus in on what I would care about as a patient, which is death or MI. And actually even the MI, the non-fatal MI, we'll talk about a little bit later. What that outcome really means is a little uncertain to me. But let's get through all these papers first. So the next trial I have in, in line is hold right here. This is in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 1994. It's a prospective RCT, 285 patients again, all diagnosed with unstable angina, sicker than what we see today. Everybody got aspirin, we're moving into the modern era, and they were just randomized to either get heparin or placebo. And they had these patients on continuous monitoring for ST segment changes. That was really what they were primarily looking at. And there was no difference between the two groups in terms of the total duration of ischemia based on ST changes on an ECG. And there was also no difference in either death or MI at 30 days. So we're starting to see a bit of a trend in these papers, eh?
0: There's no mortality or recurrent MI benefit at 30 days for any trial, so far at least.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, this is where the science starts to take a turn for the worse. And as you said, it's pretty clear. We've seen trial after trial after trial, looking at heparin, no benefit in MI or mortality at 30 days. But a couple of the trialists noticed the benefit in the first week. So if you're a researcher who wants a positive trial or a drug company who wants to sell a drug, what do you do? You stop measuring 30 days and you only look at seven days. So the next paper by Garfinkel et al., again published in Jack in 1995, is a single-blinded RCT of 211 patients with unstable angina, again with objective evidence on EKG, in three groups, aspirin alone, aspirin plus heparin, or aspirin plus low-molecular-weight heparin. So this is the first of our studies which has actually looked at low-molecular-weight heparins rather than just heparin alone. And low-molecular-weight heparins have some theoretical advantages, but as we'll see in this scenario, they don't really seem to add much. Unfortunately, these authors only followed the patients while they were inpatients up to a maximum of seven days. And what we saw here, there was no difference between aspirin plus heparin or aspirin alone, except that heparin caused an increase in bleeding. What the authors did find was low molecular weight heparin did have a small decrease in the MI rate and recurrent ischemia rate over the short-term period of seven days. But like we said, they had no long-term follow-up So we can't really tell if this is actually a clinically meaningful endpoint or like all the other studies we just looked at, it kind of regresses to the mean. And at 30 days, everyone had the same MI rate.
1: That leads us basically perfectly into really the one trial that stopped all future research and shaped our practice today. And that's the Frisk trial.
0: Right. That was a big one, right?
1: Yeah, so this is in Lancet in 1996, and it's really the big trial that forms all of our results. So it's a big multicenter, double-blind, placebo-controlled RCT, 1,500 patients here, including both patients with non-Q-wave MI and unstable angina with ECG changes. And here they compared Daltaparin to placebo in the group of patients. Again, everybody by this point is getting aspirin. This was an industry-funded study. These low-molecular-weight heparins were new at the time. And so I think that shapes how the trial was formed. They actually did a really good job. They collected data all the way out to 150 days, and they had 98% follow-up at 150 days. But when they designed the trial, they decided to make the six-day outcome the primary outcome.
0: Can you just clarify that? So... They collected all their data, they looked at it, and then post hoc, they decided, well, the data looks best at six days, so let's just use a six-day outcome. I mean, that's pretty sneaky.
1: We don't know that that's what they did. This was back in the day before you registered your trial. So there is no clinicaltrials.gov. The write-up says the six-day outcome is the primary outcome. I think common sense, if you ask any patient or any clinician, if you had data at six days and 30 days and 150 days, we would all say the patient-oriented data, the the stuff that really matters is the long-term outcomes because just delaying my MI by a week or two weeks is not a, a, a big deal. I can't say anymore what their motivation is, aside from the fact that at the time, we do know they were trying to sell Daltaparin. Fair enough. And the design paid off. Because if you look just at the six-day outcomes, there was a statistically significant decrease in their combined endpoint of death and MI. So at six days, it was just about 5% in the aspirin group and 2% in the Daltaparin group. So a, a decrease of about 3% absolute. But- By 40 days, the rate of composite death in MI, their primary outcome, was no longer statistically significant. And if you go out to 150 days, there was no difference between the two groups. And I think this trial, to me, entirely explains the Cochrane Review. So when I read this trial, it is clearly negative. I wouldn't want to be given heparin because although there is some difference in that first week, there's a rebound effect. In order for the outcomes to be the same at 40 days and 150 days, basically it just means that you had your MI, if you were going to have one, a couple weeks later. There is no difference in the really important outcome of MI by 150 days. The only real difference is that you get exposed to increased risk of bleeding, but with no long-term benefit at all. However, the Cochrane protocol chose the primary outcome, the one picked by the drug company. So the conclusions, the Cochrane analysis that we were talking about at the beginning are technically true, but only if you focus on the six-day outcomes. The benefit disappears if you focus on the more patient important outcome of 30 days or longer.
2: I would just add that just to focus on this composite outcome of death and MI, the entire difference was seen in MI rates. The death rates were completely the same between the two groups. So there was a small decrease in the rate of MI early, which then went away by the long-term outcomes.
0: All right, Justin, remember we talked about underreporting of drug harms in our main episode podcast on drugs that work and drugs that don't? Well, at this point, I think the audience really wants to know what the real-life harms were. Because we all know that big doses of heparin increase the risk of bleeding, but you know we use low molecular weight heparin all the time for all kinds of indications uh, where it doesn't really increase the risk of bleeding much at all. So my question is, how much is this bleeding risk? How much did these patients actually bleed on heparin?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really important question. And unfortunately, this data, because of the way it's designed, cannot answer that question for us this trial really skews the risk of heparin completely. So if you look at the Cochrane review overall, they say that there's an increase in minor bleeding, but not an increase in major bleeding, which just doesn't make any sense for anyone who prescribes heparin. And that conclusion is primarily based off this trial, because this is the biggest trial we have. And although those numbers are technically true, minor bleeding increased a lot. It was 8% versus 0.3%. But major bleeding in this trial wasn't changed. It was about 0.5% in both groups. But I find that number incredibly misleading. And we've talked about this before. Like you said, there are a lot of ways that RCTs can underestimate harms. I remember this trial was industry funded. They wanted us to buy this new drug, Daltaparin. So in total, they included 1,500 patients in this trial, but there were 5,000 eligible patients. So they included less than one third of the eligible patients uh, here. So there's going to be some significant selection bias. And and more importantly, they excluded 1,000 patients specifically because they thought they were high risk from bleeding. So the real reason that we don't see a major increase in major bleeding here from Delta Perrin is almost certainly because they just excluded every patient that had any risk of bleeding at all. So I think the risk of bleeding in real life, in the real world, is going to be a lot higher than what we see in this trial. Let me just
0: challenge you there a bit, Justin. So they excluded one-fifth of patients who they deemed at risk for bleeding, right? Now, I would argue that we probably do that to a certain extent with our ACS patients in real practice. You know, the the ACS patient who comes in who had a big jive bleed on their last admission a few months ago or a year ago isn't going to get heparin for me at least. You know, we kind of do that risk assessment for every patient that we're about to give any blood thinner to. I think what they did in this study, I didn't look at the details of exactly who they excluded in terms of bleeding risk, but we do that all the time in real practice, no?
1: Yeah. So I think you, your practice might be more nuanced uh, than a lot of clinical practice out there. So my observation is actually that NSTEMI equals heparin without any thought almost all the time, I would back it up. And I think that's a really important observation. So we'll discuss at the end whether there's a benefit. Because obviously, we shouldn't give something quibbling over exactly how much harm there is from heparin won't matter to us at all if there's no benefit. And I think that's where we're, where we're going to get. But even if, if we don't believe the data we present, even if you think there might be some benefit to heparin, if you really want to follow strict evidence-based medicine, I think you have to keep in mind that no, you do not give heparin to every single patient because that's not even what they did in the trial. So I think you need to be selective with your use of low molecular weight heparin if you're going to give it because that's the best evidence based answer. So I I think you're right. If you used low molecular weight properly, you could probably get down to a place where the risk of major bleeding was not that much different than placebo. I think you know giving an anticoagulant it's always going to be somewhat higher. But then the question is why are we giving this? Harmful medication if there's no benefit in the first place.
2: The other thing is, you know, we, we compare these things like they're the same, right? Like major bleeding is the same as an MI. Um, and it's a little hard to tell from this data, but, you know, considering that these MIs didn't lead to any increase in death and they all evened out at 30 to 40 days, I can't imagine these were clinically relevant MIs and were probably a lot more like an increase in biomarkers um, or EKG changes, but no notable effect to the patient. And if you look at it from that perspective, Major bleeding is major bleeding, right? You have to drop out your hemoglobin or you have a devastating head bleed, which certainly is a clinically rebel event. So even if the rate of major bleeding was smaller than the rate of clinically irrelevant MIs, it's a far more important
1: outcome. And to take that to its extreme, I think both of them are, are surrogates. Why would I care about major bleeding? Aside from the fact that it's gross and I don't want to go to the ICU, really, I, I'm worried I'm going to die. Why would I care about an MI? Really, I'm worried because I'm going to die. So I think you can wash out all of this and focus a lot on the mortality overall. And the one thing we can be pretty certain about from these trials is that mortality is unchanged. So quibbling about these other surrogates, I think is far less important than coming back to the fact that we know for sure heparin is not life-saving.
0: All right. Yeah. So I think we all agree that heparin's not life-saving. It doesn't have a mortality benefit. And I think one of the themes here is going to be that We shouldn't be just ticking the box off for heparin, that we really need to think carefully about each individual patient, think about their bleeding risk, and think about whether they might have any benefit at all. Let's continue with the next RCT, which is the FAMI trial, right, Rory?
2: Yeah. So the FAMI trial um, published by Cocker et al. in the Indian Heart Journal in, in, in 2000, it's kind of interesting because this is the second largest trial that we've done so far of 1,128 patients, multi center, double blinded, ticking off all the good boxes, and again comparing delta to placebo in patients with an MI who did not receive thrombolytics. So, a little different group than what we've been dealing with so far. But, like mostly what we've seen so far, they found no difference in their primary outcome, which was a composite of death, reinfarction, reoccurrence of angina, and emergent revascularization. 6.7 versus 7 percent.
0: All right. This is all sounding very uh, nindish to me. Uh, all right, Justin, can you summarize for us then the non-STEMI data on heparin?
1: Yeah. So I think we hit a lot of the big issues as we as we went through. Uh, to me, the data is pretty compelling. There's nothing, no such thing as black and white in evidence-based medicine. But in general, I don't prescribe any form of anticoagulation for non-STEMI or unstable angina patients and i spent a lot of my time trying to discourage my medical colleagues or the registrars or the residents looking after my patients from prescribing it for my patients i think we can say pretty definitively that heparin doesn't save lives agreed so the debate really is just about this small rise in non-fatal mi that only occurs potentially early on versus a small increase in, in bleeding. And again, we, we sort of said it, but I think really taking a step back and thinking about what a non-fatal MI really is is probably one of the most important things you can do about it. Isn't MI really a patient-oriented outcome? It definitely sounds like it, but why do you care about an MI if you're a patient? You really care about an MI because you might die. So non-fatal MI, by definition, you're not gonna die. It By definition, is a lot less scary. So what does that transient bump in troponin actually mean to me? Probably nothing. Now, maybe it would have some effect on my exercise ability at six months, but it might not. So it's important to keep in mind that this is a surrogate outcome. What we're really measuring is, yeah, maybe CHF five years from now, maybe something else, but we're making a lot of maybes uh, down the line.
2: Yeah, I mean they they really didn't get into the granularity of this data here. And and that's the problem, right? Cuz like you said, if it if it was an MI, even if it didn't cause death, but you know, if the patient suffered from heart failure or there was significant morbidity, then it would be something we'd want to prevent. Um but you can't really tell that from what they've suggested. I imagine you you know, you would think if truly you were preventing MIs of that magnitude, you would see a difference in mortality, but it's not something that we can definitively say.
0: I want to know details like How many patients actually ended up with ischemic cardiomyopathy for the rest of their life versus how many patients actually had head bleeds or massive GI bleeds requiring ICU admission? Then you can at least start to compare somewhat apples and apples. We just don't have that data. So we don't really know because in the end, I think it becomes this balance between the risk of bleeding, which has a huge range of severity and having a recurrent MI, which also has a huge range of of severity from a little bump in the troponin that means zero to having ischemic cardiomyopathy for the rest of your life.
1: So absolutely. I I think- one of the major benefits of, of talking about this a lot is really to emphasize in future research, there's a reason we talk so much about patient-oriented outcomes. And just to tell non fatal MI, even though it sounds patient-oriented, is a surrogate for those other outcomes, ischemic heart disease down the line. So hopefully, if people really want to settle these kind of issues, we should be looking at those kind of patient-oriented outcomes. However, coming back to the question at hand, we're not actually comparing MI to GI bleeding because you have to remember that difference in MI completely disappears by one month. So there is no benefit in terms of MI and there is a harm in terms of bleeding. And I think that's the comparison you have to make.
2: And that's the key. How how many truly clinically meaningful MIs do you prevent in the first week and then it goes away afterwards? That doesn't really make sense to me. This seems more like these clinically small or these non-clinically important small MIs that you see leaks in biomarkers or small EKG changes and someone calls it an MI. But if you didn't have that EKG or you didn't have the biomarker, the patient wouldn't notice at all.
1: I actually think that there's probably a bias in these trials. So I think it becomes pretty clear as soon as you stop your heparin, you're more likely to have an MI in that next week or two, because that's the only way to get to to equal numbers at 30 days. But you got to remember that these patients are all outside of the hospital at at that point. So there's probably also a workup bias that it's likely that in the heparin group that we know is having more MIs, because they're at home and people aren't drawing their troponins all the time it's quite possible that we missed some of those MIs. And so actually there are even more M- MIs and the groups are even closer than what the, these numbers tell us.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine trying to engage in uh, patient-centered care, telling a patient, look, there's a small possibility that you might have less of a chance of a heart attack in the first week, but as soon as you just stop this medication, then you'll have more of a chance of having a heart attack after that. So what do you want to do? You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's a pretty
2: tough one actually. Well, I mean, I think that's important because when you lay it out like that, it becomes pretty clear what the harms and benefits of the medication are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: And that's how I try to teach my residents. I, I try to teach all my residents to do an informed consent conversation with this data afterwards. And as soon as you say it out loud, not even to the patient, it becomes pretty clear that maybe we shouldn't be giving this medication. I will say, like all of evidence-based medicine, there are, or maybe a few exceptions, because really, we've been focusing on these MSTEMI patients, but not all NSTEMI is, is the same, right? Occasionally, there are patients that are technically NSTEMI. They don't hit the STEMI guideline criteria yet, but they probably should be treated like STEMI, you know, patients that I'm pretty sure have an inclusion of their coronary artery. You know, you see, I do winter's T-waves, or they keep having the pain come and go, and then they get these big Wellens T-waves. In those patients, I might want to treat them a little bit more like STEMI than non-STEMI.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you're thinking about like a tight lesion and you know you've got six hours before they're going into the cath lab, I think that'd be the one case where I I would consider giving heparin. Obviously, you know, they didn't have big risk factors for bleeding, but in that kind of case, that's something I might actually think about heparin, but otherwise it's not something I generally prescribe.
0: All right. So the really sick patient with the STEMI or the one that has just features on the ECG that are really worrisome and just clinically putting it all together, if they're really worrisome, then it's something to maybe consider. Uh, I think we're all agreeing that certainly as a routine, heparin should not be given to NSTEMI and unstable angina patients that you'd really, if you were going to give it, you'd really have to choose your patients carefully and really assess their bleeding risk as well.
3: Here comes the EBM Bomb! Hi, it's Anton Nicholian again with another EBM Bomb. Today we're going to be covering meta-analyses. A meta-analysis is a type of systematic review where the results of multiple studies are combined to produce a statistic. But what is a systematic review? Well, systematic review is a type of study that combines multiple other studies to come up with an answer to a clinical question. These are considered one of, if not the best, studies to direct clinical decisions. But how are they done? Well, authors first decide on a clinical question they want answered. Then they set out to find their articles using particular inclusion and exclusion criteria. Once they have their studies, they appraise these articles for their quality of evidence. A systematic review will normally interpret these results from the articles and answer the clinical question. The most famous example of these are the Cochrane Reviews, which are systematic reviews conducted by the same group, the Cochrane Library. A meta-analysis is a systematic review where, to interpret the results, the authors combine the patients from each individual study and produce one overall statistic. This generally produces our highest level of evidence, but you always need to keep in mind what pool of studies the authors are relying on. If the results of the individual studies are flawed, well, you will have some of the flaws in your final results. And that's why meta-analysis is only as good as the studies that are included in it. And that's been your one-minute EBM bomb.
0: Let's move on to STEMI. Does heparin actually help in STEMI? And this is something that has become standard practice, ticking off that box when you call a code STEMI. Let's dig into that literature.
1: When I originally did the heparin review, I didn't. Look at this question at all because I had heard from so many people, from cardiologists, from resuscitationists, from some really smart people, that of course you absolutely must give heparin when you're having a PCI procedure done. Do what you want with the NSTEMI patients, but PCI means mandatory heparin. Uh, But when we decided to record, I thought I would look a little bit deeper into this. And it turns out the best answer, I think, is really, we don't know. It actually has never been studied. There's not a single study. The AHA document does recommend it, but they say in their document, and I quote, This recommendation does not come specifically from empirical data, whatever that means. So it's a level C recommendation, which basically just means it's the opinion of some experts. And that's a bit of a problem because what does expert opinion really mean? But that being said, there is a little bit of evidence that we can get into. Heparin has been studied in RCTs in the setting of lytics for STEMI. But before we get there, it might be useful to consider the question, does every patient going to the cath lab need heparin. Because that's what I've been told over and over and over again, that heparin is absolutely necessary for patients going to the PCI. And there is a little bit of data on that. That's just incredible
0: that the AHA actually says in their guidelines that the recommendation does not come specifically from empiric data and that it's a level C recommendation. Yet you're right, Justin, it is considered standard of care that everyone going to the cath lab get heparin unless they're at extremely high bleeding risk, I've never seen it not given.
1: I think that brings up one of my biggest problems in general. I've ranted about guidelines before, but we severely in medicine, you need to have two separate documents. You have the one pager that lists everything that is clear, level one, high quality uh, evidence, and everything that's expert opinion. I think it's still valuable. We should listen to our experts, but it, I think it needs to be on a separate document so we don't get confusion like this. I don't mind if we're giving, giving heparin because the experts want us to give it, but I think everybody out there should understand that we're giving it not based on science, but based on opinion, because that might change your clinical practice in important ways. One of my early patients was a patient who had a STEMI at the top of the stairs, fell down the stairs, and had some blood in her head. Neither the neurosurgeon nor the cardiologist uh, accepted taking her because the cardiologist said, I absolutely cannot take her to the cath lab, even though she has a clear anterior STEMI because she can't have any heparin. And the neurosurgeon says, well, she's going to die from her STEMI, so we're not going to have a look at her. If I had known this data back then, I could have argued with the cardiologist a little bit more because I think it would have been clearly the right thing to take her to the cath lab and not give her heparin.
2: Yeah, that's a great example. And there's lots of examples like this. You know, when you have the clear-cut 60-year-old, no bleeding wrists with an anterior STEMI that's going to the cath lab, we don't know whether it's helpful or not, but that's probably not the patient it's worth arguing about. Emergency medicine is dirty, and there's lots of patients that you're not exactly sure what's going on, right? And you call the STEMI because of all the environmental issues that force us to call the STEMI early and early undiagnosed patients. But when you're not sure if it's its heart and you might be something else, that's the kind of patient that holding the on might be important.
0: That's a super important point. I think you just said there, Rory. Let's get into some of the RCTs looking at heparin for patients going for PCI and see whether the evidence is really any good for any benefit to help us make those decisions, especially in those patients that aren't clear STEMIs.
2: The first of these trials, there's really one RCT looking at this, and it's a bunch of letters that don't actually spell a word. The CIO trial or C-I-A-O trial. Oh, it's ciao, dude. Where's your Italian? (laughs) Ciao. The Chow trial. Fine.
1: And you might have said STEMI there. To be clear, there are no trials of PCI for STEMI patients. So This is a trial looking at heparin in PCI, but not in STEMI patients. There's literally zero trials in the patients we care yeah, about. Yeah.
2: So, so this was a double-blind RCT looking at patients undergoing elective PCI for stable coronary artery disease. And all patients were on dual antiplatelet agents, and they were randomized to heparin or placebo. The primary outcome was a composite of death, MI, and revascularization at 30 days, and placebo was statistically non-inferior. The numbers were actually worse for the heparin group, but just not enough to make the placebo group statistically superior. So 2% in the placebo group and 3.7% in the heparin group. There were more periprocedural MIs in the heparin group, which is why you actually think you should be giving heparin, right, when they're going to the cath lab. So that's really strange to me. And of course, obviously, non-surprising, there was more bleeding in the heparin group, 1.5% versus 0% in the placebo group.
1: This trial shocked me when I found it because, as I said, everybody tells me that you must have heparin during PCI. And this is the only RCT of heparin during PCI. Actually, heparin looks worse, but the official conclusion is it's non-inferior. So I don't know where this idea that we absolutely have to have heparin for everybody having uh, PCI came from because the only data that I can find is this. There is another retrospective trial that we can mention. It it came out last year and we talked about it a fair amount in the FOMED community. It's Chen in JAMA Internal Medicine 2018. It's just retrospective. It's 6,800 patients all with non-STEMIs who underwent PCI. And of those 6,800 in the real world, 4,600 of them weren't given any kind of anticoagulation during that procedure. So it tells you that even though we're told all the time that you have to have anticoagulation in the real world, a lot of cardiologists just aren't giving heparin to the patients getting PCI. And when they compared the patients who had heparin to those who didn't have heparin, the rate of MI, the rate of death were exactly the same. There was no difference. The only difference between the groups was that, as you would expect, people who got heparin had more major bleeding. Now, Again, this is a retrospective trial, so there could be a clear confounders here. There could be a reason that some patients were given anticoagulation and others were not, but I think it's a reasonable look at how heparin is currently being used in the real-world setting, and the data doesn't seem to support the idea that heparin is absolutely required for all PCI patients.
0: All right, so there's no data specifically looking at PCI in STEMI patients, which is actually just mind-blowing because it's kind of standard of care now, but the couple of trials that we have don't show any benefit of heparin use in PCI in less sick patients. Let's get back to the STEMI patients because this is what we really care about. I understand that heparin was studied in STEMI patients treated with lytics, right? What do those trials show?
2: So these are the fun trials. These are the, the old lytic and, and aspirin trials that were published in the 80s and 90s looking at this. And the first one we're going to look at is the gc 2 trial. This was a factorial randomized trial looking at alteplase versus streptokinase and heparin versus no heparin among a little over 12,000 patients with acute myocardial infarction. And it was a two by two factorial design, like I said, a little over 12,000 patients. And they were randomized to alteplase or streptokinase. And they also were either randomized to subcutaneous heparin or no heparin. And let's focus on the heparin arm for now. There was no difference in their composite outcome of death plus severe left ventricular damage. So that's an interesting one, right? Unlike the trials before where we looked at MI, which may or may not be clinically important, severe left ventricular damage is a reasonably clinically important outcome, though still a surrogate of sorts. But no difference between the two, 22.7% versus 22.9%. percent Not surprisingly there was a small increase in major bleeding, 1% versus 0.6%. And this is in a trial where high-risk patients were excluded because they were all getting thrombolytics. It's also important to remember the trial was not placebo-controlled. You either got heparin or you didn't. And this obviously favors the heparin group.
1: And just to continue on, the next trial is a direct continuation of this trial. The next trial is ISIS-3, which when they were doing this GISI-2 trial, they decided that they really wanted to look at mortality alone as a primary outcome rather than that composite with LV dysfunction. And so to do that, they needed to make the trial bigger to make the mortality to be powered for mortality as a standalone outcome. So basically, they added a bunch more patients. They ended up with 20,000 patients of those 12,000 are the ones that Rory just talked about. And again, these results are exactly the same. Despite having 20,000 patients, there was no change in 30-day mortality, and there was no change in cardiac complications. There was a small increase in major bleeding when you gave patients heparin. It increased by about 0.5%.
2: This is really important because a lot of these trials, when you go back and look at the original cardiac trials, so the ones looking at aspirin, the ISIS trials, and the Gisi and and the Gusto trials, they all focused on clinically important endpoints, death, left ventricular dysfunction, stuff that we really care about. Can you imagine if these authors had chosen similar outcomes to what we were looking at earlier, you know, MI defined by small bumps in troponin or or changes in EKG? We may have actually seen a difference here. We may be having a totally different conversation.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty huge and clearly negative trial. I guess the next question is, how did we get from a 20,000 person trial showing harm to heparin being used as standard of care? You know, why did we even decide to study this again? I don't really get it.
2: Yeah, so something else happened in the mid-90s, and we saw the introduction of the low molecular weight heparins. And, you know, I guess this sort of depends how cynical you are or how realistic you are, depending on you how, how you look at it. But there are some theoretical reasons why low molecular weight heparins could be better. And so the optimist might say, despite a clearly harmful trial, research continued because we had new, shiny, more promising agents. On the other hand, it might just be another example of drug companies having a brand new shiny product that they had to sell, and so they needed new trials to show that there was a benefit. But whatever their motivation was, we have a few more trials. And the first one we're going to look at is the FRAMI trial. This is by Cotney et al., published in Jack in 1997. It's a multi-centered, double-blind RCT comparing deltaparin to placebo in 517 MI patients after they received streptokinase. The original sample size was 776. The primary outcome, the combination of left ventricular thrombus and arterial embolism was lower in the delta parent group. 21.9% in the placebo group was 14.2% in the delta parent group. However, all the arterial emboli occurred in the delta pairing group. So the entire difference was from non-patient oriented LV thrombus. Stroke was unchanged. Reinfarction was unchanged. Mortality, like every other trial, was unchanged. And of course, major hemorrhage was higher in the delta parent group, 2.9%, versus 3%. So, technically, this is a positive outcome because the primary outcome was better in the delta parent group, but I'm not sure it was really a primary outcome that many of us care about. Everything that mattered seemed to not be better in the delta parent group, in fact, worse, and there was definitely more bleeding.
1: So Rory, what you said there I think is so important because this trial to me uh, really highlights exactly why we talk about surrogate outcomes so much because they made LV thrombus their primary outcome. But why do you care about LV thrombus? You care because that thrombus might go somewhere. It might cause a stroke or an emboli of some sort. And so in this trial, even though LV thrombus was slightly higher in the placebo group, all of the arterial emboli were worse. Stroke wasn't changed. Nothing was changed. And it's such a great example of why surrogate outcomes just don't matter. Yes, there was a slight difference in the LV thrombus, but there was no difference in the rate of that thrombus breaking off and harming the patient in any way.
2: Sure. And then what kind of population nowadays has LV thrombus occurring 21% of the patient? That's an incredibly high rate. You have to imagine nowadays in the reperfusion era, you just don't see LV thrombus that high.
1: And I don't have the data in front of me, but we have to remember this is 1997, and so these patients weren't getting dual antiplatelet therapy for the most part, and we were treating them different than we are in the modern era. So to continue on, this this problem of non-patient-oriented outcomes will come up for a few trials in a row, so I can just jump to the next one in our list, which is the Biomax 2 trial. It's the Frostfelt in, again, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, 1999. It's another RCT, Daltaparin versus placebo, again, in streptokinus patients after STEMI. Now, in this trial, every single one of the patients went for an angiogram after they were given their thrombolytics. It's a small trial. It was 101 patients. They only got two doses of Daltaparin before they went on to that angiography, and that was the total trial. And what they were really looking at as their primary outcome, again, not patient-oriented, was the TIMI-grade flow on angiography. And in this trial, it was actually statistically negative. So it's a negative trial. But if you look at the actual numbers, the Delta-Parent group did have more TIMI-grade 3 flow. So it was 68% versus 51%, but the p-value was only 0.1. But again, that's sort of a surrogate outcome, not one that I care too much about. And if you look into the actual trials here... I actually think that the outcomes tend to look a little bit worse in the delta parent group, although it's a small trial. There were five major bleeds with delta parent. There was only one with placebo. There were eight reinfarctions with delta parent. There were only two with placebo. So, I mean, a 101 person trial may just simply be underpowered to see some real important clinical outcomes. But either way, this was a negative trial. Again, maybe hints at some harm with low molecular weight hampering.
2: Moving on, we have another trial that also looks at TIMI-FLOW as their primary outcome. This was the AME-SK trial, Simmons and all, in the European Heart Journal in 2002. They compared anoxaparin to placebo in 491 STEMI patients treated with streptokinase. It's a little unclear whether this trial was blinded at all, and the primary outcome was a subjective outcome, TIMI-3-FLOW on angiogram. This time, there was a statistically significant difference in the amount of patients who had TIMI grade 3 flow, which was higher in the inoxaparent group, 70.3% versus 57.8%. All the patient important outcomes were the same, most specifically death, which is the same in both groups. Re-infarction was lower in the inoxaparent group, 2.4 versus 7.4% but there was more major hemorrhage in the anoxin group, 4.8 versus 2.5, though that wasn't statistically different. So we have a small difference in TIMI grade flow, which we're not sure has any clinical meaning all. And there was a difference in non-fatal MI, which again, you're really unclear whether this is a statistically important difference in MI or this is just a bump in your opponents.
0: Right, so in terms of clinically important outcomes, this is amazing, I mean, It's really hard to say whether this applies to 2019, where most of our patients are going straight to PCI and not getting lytics, but it's just incredible that there's actually no good evidence that there's improved patient-oriented outcomes that we care about when you add low molecular weight heparin to a lytic, and you definitely do have an increase in serious bleeding. So Justin, I think the next trial in the list is the CREATE trial. And that's an important one. Tell us why that one's important.
1: It's important because that is the one that might contradict you here. It's the only one that we have that actually may show some patient important benefits. And it's by far the biggest trial we have. So this is Yusuf in JAMA 2005. It's, as I said, the first and only trial that we really have that shows a patient-oriented primary outcome benefit. It's a bit of a funny one. I got to go into the history of medicine a bit. So it's a two-by-two two factorial design that was also looking at GIK therapy. So that's high-dose insulin, glucose, and potassium therapy that was a little bit before my time in medicine. But for our purposes, really, there's 15,570 patients in this trial that were randomized to either Revaparin or placebo. Now, I'd never heard of Revaparin before, but it is a low-molecular weight heparin. I find it a little bit strange that it's the only heparin that has really good evidence, and I've never heard of it uh, before, but it is what it is. Again, these are all patients. They're from India and China with a STEMI. So these were all STEMI patients given low molecular weight heparin or placebo for seven days. There are a few uh, problems with this trial. It has multiple primary outcomes, and you're really only supposed to have one. And It isn't registered on anywhere like clinicaltrials.gov, so I can't go back and check if one of those was supposed to be the primary outcome. But I think the most important thing to know about this trial is that these STEMI patients really don't get the kind of care that we're used to in North America in 2019. So overall, 73% of these patients received lytics; They primarily got streptokinase, and 6.1% of them underwent PCI. But that means that more than 20% of patients who were STEMI patients were not reperfused in any way in this trial. One in five patients with a STEMI, no reperfusion. The other big difference, everybody got aspirin, but only about half of these patients got dual antiplatelets, uh, clopidogrel or, or something similar. So slightly different than what we would do today. But if I had to phrase this, this is a trial of low molecular weight heparin in incompletely treated STEMI patients. And I think that, that might make a big key in how you interpret the results here. I guess I'll finally get to the results. Their composite outcome was death, reinfarction, and stroke. It occurred in 11% of the placebo group, 9.6% of the reviparin group. So that is a 2.4% benefit with reviparin, and it was statistically significant. Maybe more importantly, mortality was also statistically improved. It was improved by 0.9%. Reinfarction was also improved by about 0.5%. There was, as you would expect, a slight increase in life-threatening bleeding. It was increased by about 0.5%, and intracranial hemorrhage went up by about 0.2%. That's a lot of numbers to throw out at you. I don't really know what to make with it. It's Clearly, by the numbers, this was a positive trial, but there's also a number of red flags with with this trial, with the co-primary outcomes, the inability to check the protocol, but more importantly, the the fact that these patients are not really like my STEMI patients. 20% of them weren't revascularized at all, only half got dual antiplatelet therapy. So at the end of the day, I'm not 100% sure why this trial was positive when all the other trials were negative. You know, maybe reviparin is special. Maybe it's a different low molecular weight heparin. Maybe heparin's really important in STEMI patients, but only if you don't get lytics. Or maybe the other trials were wrong, or maybe this was just. Positive by chance alone. Roy, do you have any thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, this trial reminds me a lot of the COMMIT trial, which looked at clopidogrel, also out of China, also a massive trial, also a lot of their patients got lytics, or no revascularization at all. And it was the only trial to ever find clopidogrel had a mortality benefit. And it was a tiny, less than 1% mortality benefit, but because they enrolled 15,000 patients, it was statistically significant. The best I can say is it took you 15,000 patients in a trial with multiple endpoints who didn't get the kind of care that we get today to find a less than 1% difference in mortality. I don't know what to make of that, but I, I don't think it's clinically meaningful in the patients that we see and how we treat them these days.
0: But that'll have to be our next journal gem is uh, antiplatelet agents for, for MI.
2: <laughs> I think if we do one more journal gem on cardiac issues, people are going to have a heart attack. I think we have to, to, to move to something else in emergency medicine.
0: <laughs> All right, Justin, can you give us a summary of heparin for the lytic trials?
1: Yeah, I mean, summarizing them isn't all that easy. I think the three earliest trials, and these were big, you know, 20,000 people uh, trials, were clearly negative. There was no benefit seen, and, and there was clearly uh, some harms from bleeding. And then the later trials, we had a few that showed these non patient oriented outcomes, this, this increase in Timmy flow, but still didn't really show us any patient oriented benefit. And then you get this CREATE trial, which again shows a 0.9% benefit in mortality. And so I think that's important. I think that's something we should pay attention to. But there's a number of red flags that tell us that Create might not be giving us the uh, the truth. Unfortunately, these trials leave us with, I think, more questions than answers. I don't know if these trials tell us that we only should be using low molecular weight heparin and forget the unfractionated stuff. I don't know if reverparin is better. I don't know why these trials are so heterogeneous, some clearly being negative, some clearly being positive. I think scientifically, uh, Journal Jam speaking, I think the best answer that we can give is that we really should see a replication of the CREATE trial with every patient getting revascularization, with every patient getting dual antiplatelet therapy, and just see if that benefit is still there clinically speaking, it's, it's a little bit more difficult, but I think seeing that small benefit in uh, mortality and going back to the NSTEMI trials and seeing that there was some physiologic difference, something did happen in that first week. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but there are a bunch of trials that compare unfractionated heparin to low molecular weight heparin and the low molecular weight heparin does look better. So if you assume that unfractionated was more like placebo, then maybe low molecular weight heparin is better. No, that's hard to say. So I think when you put all that together, I think clinically, I'm probably not breaking from the guidelines. If I treat somebody with lytics, I'm probably still giving them low molecular weight heparin as a routine. but like we said a bunch of times, nothing's black and white. so I'm giving it routine if I'm not worried about a super high risk of bleeding, but I don't think you should be held to that standard. I think if you look at a patient with a STEMI and you give them lytics and you really are worried about bleeding, I think it's also fair based on this data to know that the benefit, if it's there is really small. I think it's fair to hold off on on anticoagulation as well.
2: I think the STEMI data is, is almost helpful, right? Like if you look at all this data as a whole, it's clear if it does something, it does something very little in most of our patients. All this unstable angina and, and the STEMI patients, there's likely no benefit. And if it is, it's small and transient. And the one patient that we both said that we were concerned with before we got into the STEMI data was that tight lesion that wasn't going for reperfusion. And this STEMI data suggests that that might be the one patient that it helps. The type patient that isn't getting PCI is getting some other form of reperfusion or not getting any reperfusion at all, that maybe there's a small benefit in that patient population where heparin might be
1: beneficial.
0: So in terms of what we do when we go to work tomorrow, I can say for myself that for non-STEMIs, I'm certainly not going to routinely give heparin. Certainly any patient that has A moderate or high has bled risk score, I'm not going to give it. Maybe I'll give it if, as Rory was saying near the end there, there's a tight lesion that I'm really worried about that may progress to a STEMI soon who's not going for PCI. I might consider it there. Again, if they're low risk by their has bled. And for STEMI, If I were a rural physician or if I'm in a community hospital where I know it's going to take a few hours to get to STEMI and I decide to thrombolize the patient, that's a tough one. I might give it in that situation as well. And then as far as the patient's going for PCI with STEMI, I think I'm still going to be ticking that box, but I'm certainly going to have discussions with my cardiology colleagues and challenge them on the evidence for this.
1: I basically agree with that summary. I I think the value of going through this literature, really to me, the value always of evidence-based medicine is rather than having a guideline say, do this or don't do this, knowing the numbers. And as we went through the numbers here, there's some question about whether there's a true benefit, but all the benefit is there. We're talking about one or two or 3%. We're not talking about 100%. So the first thing to know is that this is not a medication that is like a parachute, that you must give it, that is going to massively change the outcomes of your patients. And to me, that's incredibly empowering. That's incredibly freeing as a a clinician. So I'll tell you, my baseline is for NSTEMI patients, I do not give any anticoagulation at all. For STEMI patients with Lytics, which is where I'm working right now, I do give the anticoagulation. With PCI, I tend not to just because I let the cardiologist do it when they get to the cath lab, just so they know exactly, you know, there's so many different options. They can choose what they want. But none of that is black and white. So the nice thing about knowing the numbers is that I can have some leeway. So although I almost never would give heparin to a non-STEMI patient, like we talked about, there is an occasional patient. I think it's nice to know, even if you decided, even if you listen to this and decide, you know what, I'm still going to give heparin to most of my non-STEMI patients because that's what the guidelines say. And I'm worried about messing with the guidelines. I think it's really important to know that the benefit's small. So I was telling you guys offline about the case that really made me want to tackle this topic. And it was a young patient, came into the emergency department with chest pain the night before, and it was, you know, pretty typical chest pain, although the patient was young and didn't have any risk factors. Now, I did get some more information the next day, but unfortunately, I only saw the patient after a cardiac arrest. The patient was an inpatient, but was still being held in RED. Now, long story short, the troponin was positive the night before, and they weren't really sure that it was an M.I., but they gave heparin just to be safe. And it turns out that the diagnosis was pericarditis and the arrest was caused by a hemorrhagic effusion and our resuscitation efforts failed. The patient died. And I think the value of knowing this data is knowing that you know, this is not a life-saving medication. And so if you had that exact same patient again and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I want to be safe. I want to get this guy admitted to hospital. I'm not sure that this isn't an NSTEMI acs Knowing that there's some uncertainty knowing that in in that situation, I don't have to give heparin. So I think knowing that the numbers gives you a lot more leeway to practice shared decision-making and to make some better decisions for your patients. Uh, As my very long-winded way of saying for the most time, no heparin, but occasionally I think you're allowed to make your decisions.
2: I think that's the most important part. I mean, the, the big thing about this data that, that we kind of goes unsaid and the big thing about the guidelines that goes unsaid is they're assuming you've selected patients that have true cardiac disease. And that's not what emergency medicine is, right? I mean, most emergency medicine, we don't know what's happening when we first say the patient. And sometimes by the time they're admitted, we still don't know what's happening with them. And I think the big, you know, anecdotally when most of us have seen the harms of heparin, it's when we've applied it to the wrong patient out of fears of not giving it when we're supposed to by the guidelines or because we've activated a protocol in our hospital and it just sort of starts happening and and we lose control of it. And I think those are the areas where understanding this data helps. The fact that it doesn't change your mortality and if at best it does transient improvements in the rate of MI lets you able to kind of sit back and say, wait a minute, this patient's complicated. I'm not sure if this is ACS. I'm not sure if this is heart disease. There might be something else going on and I might hurt the patient if I give them heparin at this moment. I'm going to hold for now and figure stuff out and then I'll give it if the circumstances play out that way.
0: All right, guys. Well, that uh, about wraps up another journal jam. We promise we won't do a cardiac journal jam for a while. <laughs>